Christian teachers notoriously have lots of opinions about sex. Sometimes they even claim those opinions are God's will. But what if some of those teachings are hurting people, even wrecking marriages? Hey friends, I'm Mark Allen Shelsky, and this is The Apprenticeship Way, a podcast about spiritual growth following the way of Jesus. This is episode 42. Can you imagine Jesus demanding sex? Today's podcast is sponsored by the Untangled Heart Course. This past year has been a lot, right? The emotional overhead, it's enormous. So many of us are not feeling ourselves. More of us are wrestling with depression and motivation than ever before. We're feeling fragmented. Even the idea of going back to normal is causing anxiety for some of us. This year has been hard. Because for so many of us, so much of this year has been lived in crisis mode, we haven't really taken the time we need to process all those feelings. And that stuff, it comes out one way or another. Learning how to sit with and understand all those feelings is essential. I collaborated with a friend who's a trauma therapist, and together we created an online workshop that can help you. You'll learn how to recognize your feelings, even the ones you don't know you're having yet. You'll learn what those feelings mean and why, and you'll learn how to listen to them in a constructive way. The course costs 49 bucks. It includes five hours of video teaching, guided journal questions to help you process the material and think about your life, a 23-page downloadable notes packet, a two-page emotion reference card, and you'll have access to the course for life, or at least the life of the website. You can go through the material at your own pace as often as you like. Does that sound interesting or helpful? then check it out at www.untangledheartcourse.com. The past couple of episodes, I have mentioned that a whole bunch of us, and by us I mean folks in the extended Christian family, are rethinking our faith and our place in the church. In the past few years, we have seen so many people who wear the label Christian behaving in ways that just don't smell like Jesus, and we're wondering, is that what following Jesus really looks like? Is there a place for me in the church if that's what it's about? Some of us are wondering what faith in Jesus might look like if we leave some of that stuff behind. Today I'm excited to introduce you to a voice that I think you should pay attention to. This leader is doing important work in a space that has honestly been the source of a lot of pain for many of us. It may even be the reason some folks, maybe even you, are deconstructing away from Christianity. Her name is Sheila Ray Gregoire. Now, Sheila is a self-identified evangelical. She loves the church. She loves the Bible. She's not a grumpy, progressive Christian like I sometimes come across as. Even so, she's doing something I haven't seen before. She's an authentic, vulnerable, healthy voice in the discussion around sex who wants the church to go beyond pat answers and toxic controlling practices. And that is something I am excited to see and happy to share with you. Sheila has a book that just came out that's really stunning. It's called The Great Sex Rescue. It's based on the largest survey of Christian women ever done, 20,000 respondents. Her findings are honestly shocking. There's no question that very often the church has done grave damage to people with sexual information that's false, damaging, misleading. 
If the church is going to be a healthy place, this is a conversation we have to have. Now, be mindful as you listen. This is a content warning. In this interview, we're going to be talking about sex, body parts, sex acts, porn, sexual abuse, rape, and marital rape will all be mentioned in passing. So be advised, you may not want to listen while kids are around or at your office desk. But frankly, though, the most controversial thing we'll talk about for some folks is the idea that common Christian teachings on these subjects are doing damage to people. Let's get started. Sheila, thank you so much for sitting down with me today. I am really excited to have this conversation with you. Well, I'm um, glad to be here. So the event that uh, that causes this conversation to happen is the launch of your book, The Great Sex Rescue. One of the points of connection we have is that I started following you online. Uh, here's this Christian lady seems like she's sort of right in the middle of mainstream evangelical culture, and she's talking about sex on Twitter in ways I've not seen <laughs> anybody do before. That's yep. interesting. I started following you, and then sometime shortly after that, I'm not exactly sure if this is a couple years ago, you began passing out the survey that laid the foundation for this book, and I shared that with a bunch of people and passed that around my community. And so here we are, however much time later... And you got this survey, which turns out to be the largest survey mm -hmm. of Christian women. Is that is that the the number? Yeah. So it's the we, we surveyed twenty thousand predominantly Christian women, and really in depth. And what we were trying to figure out is: Are there certain evangelical teachings which are making women's marriages and sex lives worse? Really important question, mm -hmm. and uh, the the urgent thing we want to talk about is what uh, what did you discover? Because <laughs> there's a lot of vested parties in this conversation. There are people that want to say, "Oh, the way that the church has been handling and teaching about sex and gender roles and marriage is all sacrosanct, and of course it's wonderful and it works mm -hmm. if you work it correctly." And then other people would say, "No, purity culture has been a catastrophe and." deeply damaging to lots of people, but you have data. What did you learn? Yeah, so there certainly are quite a few evangelical teachings which do major harm to women. The main problem that most couples say they have, and this is, I know it's an overgeneralization, but the biggest problem if you ask couples is either that women don't want sex or they don't enjoy sex. Okay. For instance, what we found in our survey was a 47 point orgasm gap. And by that, what I mean is that 95% of men almost always are always orgasm in a given sexual encounter, but only about 48% of women do. And so that's a big gap. And we just yeah. figured if we can solve the pleasure problem, life's better for everybody, like both men and women. <laughs> right, right, right. right. So, but, but then you, you are kind of up against an idea that some folks might suggest maybe that orgasm gap is just the normal thing. Like maybe that's the way it's been designed. Right. And it isn't. <laughs> I mean, medically, we know that there is no reason to think that. And in fact, women were designed to be more orgasmic than men. You know, we can have multiple orgasms. Um, we have no refractory period, lots of things right. like that. And God right. created a body part in women where the only purpose is pleasure. He didn't do right. that the, men, men. the men's orgasm has some sort of utilitarian purpose, right? Procreation. Yes, yes. The women's orgasm must be 
a bonding thing, a pleasure thing. Yeah. So I mean, I, there's no reason to think that women shouldn't be. And, and I want to state from the very beginning, I do hold to biblical sexual ethic. I do think that sex is meant for marriage, but there's just a lot of trappings in the evangelical church that I think have been hurting couples. And I've been blogging about sex for years. Like I started my blog in 2008. By 2012, I was talking almost all about sex. I wrote The Good Girl's yeah. Guide to Great Sex in 2012. I wrote 31 Days to Great Sex shortly thereafter. I've created an orgasm course and a libido course like I talk about this stuff all the time. Yeah. And what I was finding is that no matter how much good content I put out there, people kept coming to me with the same problems. So I could tell you all the good stuff in the world. And there was something going on where they weren't always getting better. And what we realized is that the problem is a foundational one. And we identified five, okay. really five teachings that are very common in the evangelical world that are just toxic to women's sex lives and to men's, I might add as well. So the problem is uh, not a mechanical one. It's not mm -hmm. a biological one. Mm -hmm. It's that there's something in the air of this culture that's creating a set of expectations. Uh, it's not just in the air. It's being explicitly taught. Mm -hmm. And these teachings, according to your data, these teachings are doing damage to marriages. Yeah. So here's, here's, here's one, for instance, that we probably hear all the time. All men struggle with lust. It's every man's battle. Yes. Very common teaching. When women believe that, um, their chance of getting aroused during sex goes down, orgasm rates go down, the chance of them saying I have sex only because I feel like I have to goes way up. Um, mm -hmm. And their trust in their husbands goes way down. That happens even if they only believed it in high school, even if they don't believe it now. So it's like even if you were taught it when you were younger, and you no longer believe it, it still has really negative effects on you. In fact, that's, and that's actually the one belief we studied that had negative effects on you, even if you never believed it, even if you were oh, only wow. taught it. <laughs> okay. Right. Cause then you, the woman in this circumstance is always functioning in a role of hypervigilance mm -hmm. about the sexual behavior or thoughts, or even perhaps moral purity of mm -hmm. the men in her life. It had occurred to me when I read that that I was familiar with how we put that burden on teen girls, yeah. right? So, you know, I went to Christian schools and in Christian schools that I went to, certainly when I was there, the burden for uh, modesty mm -hmm. was entirely a problem for women, right? And, and for the teenage women, they were explicitly told it's important for you. In fact, it's a manifestation of Christian love for you to dress in a way that attends to making sure the boys around you aren't thinking sexual thoughts. Yep. So that was familiar to me. But what wasn't familiar to me was the idea that project that girl into the future. She's married. Maybe she even has a great marriage and she's in the bedroom and the act of sex, which is supposed to be bonding and intimate and mutual sharing still now is a gatekeeping exercise for her. Absolutely. And it, that goes very closely with another belief, which was um, you have to have sex with your husband or he'll be tempted to watch porn. Okay. Or he will watch porn. So slightly different, but, but it's that idea that your husband is just one step away from sexual sin at any moment. And so you are the one who keeps him 
from sinning. And again, when women believe that orgasm rates go down, arousal rates go down, their enthusiasm for sex goes down, you know, all kinds of things, plus right. the marital satisfaction as well. Another aspect of our of our study was we looked at which of the best selling evangelical books teach this stuff. Okay. And what we found is that in a whole lot of our biggest evangelical books, these are some of the main messages that are taught. You know, like in sheet music, Kevin Lehman says that during a wife's period, she should give her husband sexual favors of some sort, either oral sex or a hand job, just to help him out during this difficult time for him. And then he repeats The difficult himself. time for him. Mm-hmm. The difficult time of your period. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he repeats himself later on, like if she's simply not feeling her best or if she's postpartum or if she's got really heavy bleeding, then she can give him a hand job when he's ready to climb the walls. So he's telling a woman who's not feeling well or who's just pushed out a baby that she mm. should be giving her husband a hand job. And again, the motivation is because he can't handle regular life without it. It's not even necessarily framed as like an act of compassion or care that she might choose to do. It's framed as her responsibility to guard his moral purity. Like if he's not getting what he needs on a certain frequency, I mean, there was even a discussion about this uh, sort of mythological 72 hour frequency that protects yes. men and marriages. Have you ever heard that before? The 72 I have. Hour? Yeah, it's kind of everywhere, isn't it? Like it's in the water in the evangelical world. And we found it in so many books. It was in Power of a Praying Wife. It was in Sheet Music. It was in Every Man's Battle. Like we saw this again and again and again, the 72-hour rule. And we were trying to figure out where it came from. So we scoured the medical research. Like, is there something magical about 72 hours where men get major testicular discomfort if they don't you know, have sex or something, we could find nothing, absolutely nothing. In fact, what we did find in studies of cross-cultural masturbation, so, or sorry, in cross-cultural studies of masturbation, so different countries, young boys, expectations, yes, young boys are masturbating. The time between episodes is culturally dependent. It's not biologically dependent. So Swedish boys will masturbate at a different rate than American boys than Japanese boys. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so it's not right. biological, it's cultural. So there, the 72 hour rule, we couldn't figure it out. So we we tested all these footnotes that were all linking to each other, you know, and then we finally found the source, which was a book written in the 1970s by James Dobson. Okay. But it wasn't based on anything. And yet everywhere you go, women's conferences, blogs, all these books, they talk about the 72 hour rule. Now I do need to say that what we also found was couples who made love more frequently, like several times a week did tend to be happier on almost every measure. And so frequent sex, it's, it, it's which is the chicken and which is the egg. That's a difficult right. thing to right, figure right. out. But in general, other studies have also found that more frequent sex usually does lead to, to better marital satisfaction. And so I'm not saying frequent sex is bad. But what I am saying is when you tell women you have to have sex, especially when you tell them you have to have sex in order to stop him from sinning, you change the nature of sex. And that hurts right. women. And that's what it becomes utilitarian. We see in Genesis chapter four, that weird, weird phrase, Adam knew his wife Eve. And I remember hearing that when I was junior high, I'm sitting on the pews with all my friends and the pastor reads it and we all start laughing because that's hilarious. God's embarrassed of using the real word or something. And then your, your mother gives you the look, tries to get you to calm down and that makes you laugh harder. But as I grew up and I looked into that, 
The Hebrew word there for to know is the same word that's used when David says, search me and know me, O God. Mm, It's this deep longing to be connected. And I think God used that word to tell us that sex is more than physical. It's a deep intimacy, a deep longing. And then throughout the Bible, we also see how mutual sex is. First Corinthians seven, we quote that all the time, the do not deprive verses. But if you look at them closely, they're actually a beautiful picture of mutuality. Mutuality, exactly. It's each other. Yeah. Everything that the husband is given, the wife is also given. Which was, which was absolutely revolutionary in that time. You know, sex is mutual and sex is intimate and we know sex is supposed to be pleasurable. That's what we're talking about. That's God's mm-hmm. picture for sex. And yet so many of our resources have reduced sex to merely something that, yeah, is utilitarian. As you said, it's about Emerson Egrich says, you know, a husband has a need for physical release and that's what sex is, is his need for physical release. And that's such a shallow picture that's very off-putting to women. And I think to men too. It's shallow and it's really harmful. You know, like growing up in a a conservative Christian culture that had a lot of these uh, messages around how we maintain purity with, in regard to sex, I got this very contradictory set of messages where for much of my life, the message was, you have this profound besetting sin that is unique to you as a man. Mm-hmm. And it this is this is the sin you have to be the most concerned about. This mm-hmm. is the sin that will undo you. This is the sin that will disqualify you from ministry. This is the sin that will wreck your future marriage. This is the sin that above everything else God cares the most about because we spend the most time talking about it. That's how you know. And <laughs> and and so you are a horrible werewolf Mm -hmm. like you you are you know this nice german shepherd that everyone loves most of the time but certain times the werewolf comes out and the werewolf is a monster that's going to wreak havoc and then you get married and the message that you've been given up until that point is marriage is about having amazing mind-blowing sex that's why god Mm -hmm. gives it to us it's wonderful it's for that purpose and so now after ingesting all of these messages now you're just supposed to change that script and have wonderful, healthy sex with your spouse. And you may not even know how she ingested those messages and how it impacted her or her experience or her family of origin or, you know, Lord forbid mm-hmm. she was abused. You don't you don't know any of that. You just know that all of a sudden sex is supposed to be wonderful, even though you've been told this part of you is profoundly flawed and sinful. Yeah, it's such a mess. And I think it's a terrible message for men, too. Because basically what's happening is we're conflating sexual attraction with sin. Okay, talk about that. So if you feel sexually attracted to someone, then you're going to be tempted to lust. And once you're tempted to lust, you're basically there. And so, yes, you have to have this hypervigilance. And that's just not the way it works. I mean, Jesus said, whoever looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery. He did not say whoever sees a beautiful woman. He did not say whoever (laughs) notices that a woman has breasts. He didn't even say whoever looks at a woman. He said whoever looks at a woman with lust. Okay. And we have taken that to mean that all men have to bounce their eyes, as every man's battle says, because lust is such is this overwhelming thing. And the way that we get around it is you bounce your eyes off of women. Now, interestingly, what that is really saying is that women are dangerous. When Mm -hmm. I look at a woman, I see her in sexual terms, even if I don't technically see her because I'm bouncing my eyes. 
My yes. reaction to her, the way that I treat her is you are a sexual being that is a danger to me. So what you're essentially doing is erasing her. Yeah. She's no longer a person. She's just a sexual object. Jesus did not do that. Jesus did not stop looking at women. What Jesus chose to do was to truly see women. And, and yet that is not what our resources are telling us. Every Man's Battle was a particularly harmful book. It, it had some lines in it like, um, once he quits cold turkey, meaning quitting lust and porn, be like a merciful vial of methadone for him. Or your wife can be uh, methadone for you when your temperature is rising. I don't even have proper words to say how problematic that is. But to call her a drug to st stop your sex addiction is is really awful and dehumanizing. Dehumanizing, right? That's that's the core thing. We're not seeing the dignity mm -hmm. of this person. We're mm -hmm. not relating to them in a bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ kind of way. We're just seeing this person as a person that can an object, uh, a way to have my needs met. Yeah, and what they what they tell men to do in order to quit lust is to take all of your sexual energy and transfer it to your wife. And so they say, you know, once you start to do this, your sexual interest in her is going to go way up. So where you once came to her for five bowls of sexual gratification a week, you're now coming to her for 10. I, I read that part. And when I read the quote about coming for five bowls, I was like, what in the heck? You know, just the expectation, you know, it, 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 that this is a dispensing machine mm -hmm. that gives you snacks or the, the, the little orphan, you know, please sir, may I have another bowl of food, you yeah, know? know, like all of these <laughs> relational dynamics that are, that, that are not in any way uh, coherently aligned with the idea of a mutually upbuilding mm -hmm. marriage relationship where mm -hmm. you are caring for one another in a other centered co-suffering kind of way. Exactly. And instead, it's almost like saying men objectify women. That's the way they're made. And so the goal is to have him only objectify one woman for the rest of his life. That's just a really sad view of marriage and of manhood and everything. And I don't think yeah. that reflects Jesus. And what we found is that when women believe this, when women believe that all men struggle with lust, when women believe that you have to have sex so he doesn't watch porn, everything gets worse. So we just need to stop teaching this stuff. I was really moved by a couple of the um, anecdotal stories that you shared about women who were in largely good or, you know, on the way to being good marriages. But this particular instruction that they'd internalized actually made it so they couldn't trust their husbands. Mm -hmm. No, exactly. There was one man who was telling us a story of how his wife had been taught this before they married and she just could not trust him. So they would go through a church service and then at the end of it, she would be angry at him because he was looking at one of the worship leaders and he didn't even know which one he was supposed to be looking at, you know, yeah. or, or there were certain couples that they couldn't hang out with because she felt that the woman was more beautiful than she was. And so they were denied these friendships because his wife was so nervous and it just was wasn't an accurate reflection of what was happening in his heart whatsoever, but this is what books had told her. It hurts my heart because a lot of us are hurting for no good reason. What we right. found over and over again is that there's a lot of really good guys out there. I mean, so many women said, it was finally talking to my husband about this stuff that brought healing when I realized he wasn't like what all of these books said he was like. 
So it's not always that guys are the problem at all. It's often just these messages. And if we can just, as an evangelical church, stop peddling books that harm, we'll get so much healthier. I I know this isn't the primary focus of your book, but I'm interested to know, as you've gone through this research and identified these resources and thought about these, these teachings, do you have a sense of how this stuff that you're studying connects with the larger conversation about uh, sexual abuse in the church or power dynamics that mm-hmm. lead to sexual abuse in the church. Do you have a sense of the connection between these things? I think what's happening is that more and more women are realizing that what we've been taught is wrong and mm-hmm. we're seeing the actual harm that's being done. And that's one of the reasons we wanted to do the survey is because so often we debate these things at the doctrinal level or at the belief level. And someone will say, well, I believe X. And someone else will say, well, I believe Y. And you kind of argue X and Y. And I didn't want to argue anymore. I'm kind of tired of that. So now what I would prefer to do is if someone says, well, I believe X, I can say, okay, but then she's going to have a 38% lower orgasm rate. It just seems to be a better argument, you know? And I, I think what's happened. <laughs> it's, hard, it's hard to, it's hard to argue with orgasms. <laughs> exactly. You know, but, but let me give you, let me give you one of the harmful beliefs that I think is tied into the whole sexual abuse crisis. And that's the belief that a wife is obligated to give her husband sex when he wants it. Mm. This is, um, highly taught in almost all of our evangelical resources, a a faulty interpretation of the do not deprive verses. Those verses are not saying a wife has to give her husband one-sided intercourse, you know, that she has to give him sexual release whenever he wants it. What those verses are saying is that a mutual, intimate, pleasurable sexual relationship should be something which characterizes your marriage. If sex is to be mutual, it means that both people's needs need to matter. What's been missing out of the conversation is anything about women's needs. Um, One of the most interesting findings about that belief that a woman is obligated to give her husband sex is that it's related to a really high increase in the rate of sexual pain. Evangelical women have twice the rate of sexual pain as the general population. And we've known this since the 70s. Okay, conservative fundamentalism is one of the markers for vaginismus. And what we wanted to figure out in our survey is what is it about religious conservatism that is causing vaginismus? And the obligation sex message is a large part of it because it says to women, sex is no longer a deep knowing, sex is an owing. It's not about knowing you. It's not about feeling close. It's about you giving him what he wants, no matter what you're feeling. And that erases her as a person. It seems like that belief depending on the context of the relationship, if you're in a very high authoritarian marriage, that belief actually is the foundation of marital rape. Mm-hmm. Because if you're in a high, if you're in a high authoritarian marriage, you don't even have it. You, you don't have a choice at all. And that's, that's what rape is when you have sex and you don't have the ability to consent. And consent is the conversation that is missing from our resources. We looked at we looked at the 10 best-selling Christian marriage books. 3 of them didn't talk about sex, so we excluded them. So we had 7 marriage books and then we looked at the 6 iconic sex books. Of our 13 resources that we looked at, none of them had a robust conversation about consent. The only book that really gave a really good talk of consent was our secular control book, which was John hmm. Gottman's 7 principles for making marriage work. That's a huge issue. 
Right, right. And not not just they didn't talk about consent, but a lot of our books actually had incidents of marital rape without calling it that or, or were minimizing it. You know, His Needs, Her Needs said, uh, had a 32-year-old saying, you know, my wife doesn't want sex. I'm always, I feel like I'm always begging her or even raping her. And then it was just left there. <laughs> like, dude, if you're having that feeling, yeah, that's probably, an alarm bell. <laughs> yeah, you know, sex and rape feel red flag, very red different. Flag. Yeah. yeah. And then um, there was a horrible story in the act of marriage where there was a young woman getting married and her aunt told her that sex was terrible. And Tim LaHaye, the author, was bemoaning how Aunt Matilda had ruined sex for this girl. And he went on to explain that Aunt Matilda on her wedding night had been held down kicking and screaming while her husband raped her. Oh. And this continued throughout her, her marriage. So she felt that marriage was just legalized rape. But then Tim LaHaye was saying that it was just so sad that Aunt Matilda and her equally unhappy husband had never figured this out. So Her he, equally unhappy yeah. rapist husband. <laughs> so the rapist is equally unhappy as his rape victim. Oh, God, forgive us. This is horrible. I know. And this book went through four different editions. We read the, the final one that was published in the late 90s, and nobody thought, hmm, maybe we should take that anecdote out. Uh, it's so frustrating for me because, you know, we have in the greater Christian community, we have lots of theological discussions and differences of how we interpret things. And I, you know, on the subject of gender roles and marriage, I'm full and strict egalitarian. And I understand within the wider range, there's various flavors mm -hmm. of complementarian all the way down to, you know, authoritarian marriage. But within that range, Wherever we are, even if you believe that God's plan is some form of gender hierarchy, how could you follow Jesus and think that you ever have a right to impose your will on someone without their consent at all? How does that mm -hmm. how does that fit? How can we how can we look at the one who gave himself away for the benefit of others and think that this is just the way sex and marriage is supposed to work? That's the question that we were asking ourselves as we wrote the book. And we've come to the conclusion that many of our resources look nothing like Jesus. Oh. They call themselves Christian yes. books, but if someone were to follow what is in those books, the marriage would not resemble Jesus at all. What I'm hoping The Great Sex Rescue does is give people permission to be discerning when they read books. Mm -hmm. If you're reading something, even if it has a Christian label, but it sounds nothing like Jesus, we need to give ourselves permission to chuck it. And we've now got empirical data about this. Um, and people are just finding it so freeing. So many women have told us that the obligation sex message has held them back so much. What women said is that when they started to talk to their husbands about this and realized their husband does not want duty sex, then everything changed. There was one story one woman told us she got married and she did the 72 hour thing like she was supposed to. She initiated every 72 hours <laughs> oh, on the dot. Oh, and a couple of years into their marriage, she realized how lonely she felt because her husband never initiated sex. She was always the initiator. Mm. And she felt he doesn't desire me. He doesn't think I'm pretty. And so she went to him and they had a good talk. And she said, why don't you ever initiate? And he said, I'm just trying to keep up with you. <laughs> <laughs> and they realized 
He didn't want <laughs> sex every 72 hours and neither did she. So they decided that from now on, people were only going to initiate when someone actually wanted it. And they've settled into okay. about once a week and they're both perfectly fine with that. <laughs> and their marriage is better. Yes. Yeah. Because it's not being done out of obligation. And that's something else that we found. One of, one of our other um, findings is that sex is mostly for men and that sex is a huge need that men have. Emerson Eggers, if your husband is typical, he has a need you don't have, right? So yeah. sex is not something women want or need. What we're told over and over again is that women want conversation, women want affection, and men want sex. And so you need to give him sex if you're going to get affection, et cetera. Um, but actually, it's only just short of 60% of marriages where he has the higher sex drive. Mm. In over 20%, it's shared. And then in about another 20%, she has the higher sex drive. So there's just a lot more nuance going on than our books are yeah. leaving room for. And instead of writing about so much gendered stuff, let's just write about how we can show each other love and how we can serve each other and how we can feel intimate in the bedroom without all of these false labels and dichotomies and stereotypes. One of the things that has been moving me the most as I read your book is at the end of each chapter, when your chapters are sort of thematic, so at the end of each chapter, there's this section called rescuing and reframing. Mm -hmm. And you go through and you take a common saying or teaching and you, you offer an alternative. And just reading these alternatives, some of these sentences, like I can feel it viscerally in my gut reading your reframing, <laughs> you know, where you'll say something like, instead of saying men want sex say people want sex exactly right or instead of saying men have a higher libido say in marriage one spouse may have a higher libido and who that is may actually change over the course of your marriage mm -hmm. like that sentence has so much freedom attached to it mm -hmm. it has so much more of an invitation to understand each other and meet each other's needs and serve each other from a place of love where the sentence it's replacing is like a rule book sentence. Like this is this is how you do it. Change mm -hmm. the oil in your car every you know six thousand miles, or your car is going <laughs> to blow up. You know. Well, I don't have an intimate relationship with my car. So that that section, I why is that in there, and why is that not its own separate book? Yeah. <laughs> I know everyone's been talking about the rescuing and reframing. And it's funny because we just put it in at the end. Like we, what we were trying to think of, honestly, the purpose for that section is for pastors. Yes. We weren't thinking about it specifically for the normal reader. We were figuring they just wanted the chapter, but we wanted to make the book something that pastors could take something away too and just show people how to talk about this in a better way. So here, here's the book for anyone who's look, looking Perfect. on video here, um, The Great Sex Rescue. And I'll just read. Um, from the lust chapter, instead of saying all men struggle with lust, it's every man's battle, say lust is a battle many people struggle with. In Christ, we are no longer slaves to sin, but to the spirit. And when the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. <laughs> you know, instead of saying men are visually stimulated, say people are visually stimulated, some more than others, and often but not always men to a greater degree. But being visually stimulated does not mean that you are doomed to lust. <laughs> you're including a wider range of people because not all men and not all women meet mm -hmm. a statistical standard. You're including the possibility that if I'm not the way I was told I'm supposed to be, I'm not a weirdo, mm -hmm. which is a gift of healing. You know, you're encouraging people to understand that this stuff changes. You need to understand yourself. You need to understand your partner. Like all of that feels like 
the marital advice that should be replacing these other books mm-hmm. that are doing such great harm. <laughs> and they are. And and I really want the church to realize that we need to focus on health and not just doctrine, because Jesus said very clearly that you will know them by their fruits. Yeah. A good tree doesn't bear bad fruit and a bad tree doesn't bear good fruit. And so if the fruit of a certain teaching is bad, that is a sign to us that there's something wrong with the teaching. Yes. Too often we start with the teaching and we assume it's right, and then we never look at the fruit. But the fruit is there to show us when our interpretations might be off. I think that's part of what Jesus was saying in that, is that it's not enough to just believe something. It's not enough to pick scripture out of context. It's not enough to have a proof text. You need to look at what are the results of this on the ground. We can identify Christ where there is health, where there is good fruit, where people are growing in intimacy, where people are growing in love, where people are growing in serving, in serving Christ is there. And so let's find those marriages. Let's find what they believe and then let's copy that (laughs) and what they believe are healthy messages that bring us back to, yeah, who Christ is. And I hope I hope the book makes a big splash and lets us start to question some of these things we've been taught. You know, sex is not just about a guy's physical release. Sex is intimate. Sex isn't an obligation. Boys shouldn't be pushing your sexual boundaries. That's another one we didn't talk about. But, you know, all boys do not push girls' sexual boundaries. A lot of boys are good guys. And if a guy is pushing your sexual boundaries, that's a red flag. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, exactly. The vision that you're offering, I think, is so important. The The language of deconstruction is in is in the air, and people, there's a lot of people who are talking about experiences they've had in the church or things that they have been taught that had been hurtful to them, and they're looking around at the church. They're saying, I don't know if there's a place for me. I don't know. This doesn't, this doesn't smell like Jesus to me. I love Jesus, but I'm not sure I can be a part of whatever it is, this this thing that these people are pushing. Gender roles and, and the way we talk about sex is one of those topics that is really pushing people to consider, can I be a Christian or not? Mm-hmm. And what is so powerful to me about this is you're saying the issue here isn't that Christian sexual teaching is destructive. The issue is that Christians have been teaching destructive teachings. <laughs> exactly. I love and, that. And we can we can look at this in a different way, in a way that you as an evangelical will say this is biblical. It aligns with our understanding and, and solid interpretation of scripture. It allows us to be like Jesus in our marriages. Can you picture for a second Jesus demanding sex? Ah, right. It allows us to be like Jesus in our marriages. Marriages. It allows our marriages to be uh, center points of other-centered co-suffering love. That's wonderful. And in that kind of space, I think a lot of folks who are saying that the toxic teaching of the church uh, on the matter of sex is something I can't be a part of. That mm-hmm. vision that you're offering, I think, is something a lot of those people can say, okay, I can, I can be in that space. That space seems like it brings life. Yeah. And that's what it should be. Living with right. Jesus is life-giving. It's not soul-crushing. So why are we teaching all the stuff that's soul-crushing? Uh, yes. Some of the best feedback I've gotten has been from people who have said, you've given me back Jesus. Mm. Even though I talk about sex, what they said is, I was ready to leave the church, but I feel like I can see Jesus again. 
And that's one of the bigger prayers I have for this book, because you're right. I think a lot of people are leaving over how the evangelical church treats sex, over how the evangelical church treats power. And we just need to do this better. <laughs> yes, yes. Right. And there needs to be Amen. no excuse anymore. I hope what our book shows, and our book is rubbing a lot of people the wrong way, but I, I hope what our book shows is that there's no excuse anymore for teaching it the way we've been teaching it. As you were listening to Sheila, did you hear any echo of your own story? I sure did. I'm recording this reaction about a week after the interview, and I have got to tell you that what I learned from Sheila and from reading her book impacted me deeply. I had a big, painful, emotional response that lasted several days that I had to sit and intentionally sort through. I felt pain. I felt regret for ways that I have thought about women things I've taught as a pastor, and even honestly how I've treated my wife at times. And I thought I was one of the good guys when it comes to sex and gender roles. I was stunned. Sheila's data, it shows us facts we might not want to see, and she's got receipts, 20,000 women surveyed, focus groups, actual verified quotes from the best-selling Christian sex and marriage books. It is hard to argue with what she's found. Now, if you're a leader in the church who has the opportunity to teach or counsel on these topics, please get this book, The Great Sex Rescue. Just the reframing section at the end of each chapter is worth the price of admission. And then for God's sake, stop recommending books and resources that traumatize people. Our teaching on this subject needs to mirror Jesus. Even our intimate relationships should be rooted in other-centered, co-suffering love. Last thing. If you are a person who has been hurt by the kinds of teaching we talked about today, I want to tell you as a pastor, I'm profoundly sorry. That should not have happened to you. I pray for your healing and that your relationships and the sexual aspect of your life can be a blessing. The church should be a place of healing, a place where we learn to bear one another's burdens, a place where we practice mutual, co-suffering love. And that includes sensitive and important conversations, even conversations about sex. May you be led by the Spirit to a healing, life-giving way of understanding yourself, your body, and sex. And may we stop hurting people in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. Notes for today's episode and any links mentioned can be found at www.markallenshelsky.com forward slash TAW042. Was that helpful? Did it make you think? Then subscribe to my email list. Two emails a month at most, usually less. Links to my writing, the next podcast episode, books I recommend, and more. Plus, right now, I'm giving away to new subscribers a little book I wrote called The Anchor Prayer a prayer and practice for remaining grounded in a chaotic world. It's just about two hours of reading for most people, and it will walk you through a spiritual practice that has been so helpful to me as I have faced all the anxiety and uncertainty of the time that we are living in. Maybe you'll find it helpful too. All that is at www.markoptin.com. I want to thank all of you subscribers to the podcast who followed through on my big ask and headed over to YouTube to subscribe to my channel there. So far, 300 of you have done it. Thank you so much. The next goal is 500 YouTube subscribers. So if you haven't subscribed yet, head over and do it. 
And if you have subscribed already, like and comment on any of the podcast episodes that spoke to you. When you do that, when you like or comment or share, that tells the YouTube algorithm that this is a video worth recommending to people a lot like you. And that way, you can be helpful getting this material to other people that are seeking a healthier, more loving relationship with God. Until next time, remember, in this one present moment, you are loved, you are known, and you are not alone.